Alrighty, well, I, I want to invite you to take your Bibles and, and turn with me to, to the first epistle of Peter, First uh, Peter chapter 3, and won't you, uh, won't you stand with me for the reading of the Word of God? First Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 8, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good, Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Why don't you join me in a word of prayer? Father God, Father God, we, we, we pray that you would show us, that you, you would show us the truth of your word here. Father God, that by the power of the Holy Spirit, the truth of your word would be illuminated, that it would be made known to us. Father God, we just ask that you purge any sin from our hearts that would blind us from seeing what you're saying here. Any sin that would discourage us from wanting to take these truths and and apply it to our hearts. Father God, let there be no excuses. Father God, make your truth known and help us to have a desire to apply it in our lives. Father God, I just pray that you would assist and equip the preacher here tonight. Father God, I pray for your grace that I might be able to faithfully present uh, your word to your saints, dear Lord. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you, and you may be seated. The title uh, for tonight's message, for those of you who take notes or, or do any of that kind of thing, is Christian character in a hostile world. Now, I don't think anyone here is willing to debate me tonight on whether or not this is a hostile world, a hostile culture for Christianity. The thing is, even though the world is going to be hostile to us and they're going to persecute us and they don't like what we stand for, we still have to be Christians. We still have to respond to those of us who would oppose us in a Christian, a Christ-like manner. And so with that being said, it is my great pleasure and delight to be with you all again for the purpose of worshiping God by means of preaching His Word, and I, I hope that you will um, have your Bibles out with me that, so you can follow along, that you can join me in, in worship. As I've often reminded you, the book of First Peter opens up by addressing Christians. Peter, he, he is talking to a Christian audience, and he addresses them as the elect exiles. Now, we have talked previously about the spiritual implications of such a phrase that Christian people, that true believers, are those whom God has called out of the world to no longer live as the world does. Jesus has said that his kingdom is not of this world. That is, his kingdom is not carnal, it's not fleshly, it does not originate from creation, it does not have the same values of the society that we live in. 
And so it is in light of all of this, then, that Peter admonishes us in chapter 2, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So let's, let's put these things together in our minds and in our hearts. If we, if you and me, Christians, the people that are saved, if we are the elect exiles, that means God has chosen us to not be of this world, just as Christ was not of this world. Therefore, we are sojourners, we are exiles and strangers in this life. Now, if that is true that we are sojourners and exiles in this life and members of the kingdom of God, which is not of this world, then we ought to share the same values of the kingdom, which are not of this world. So it is in light of our being sojourners, our being exiles, that Peter says, abstain from the passions of the flesh. You see, this is not the way that the carnal mind thinks. This is not the way that the natural mind thinks. That is not the way that the world thinks, that our society thinks. The, the culture that we live in, the, this culture of death and destruction, which is wicked and evil, will tell you the exact opposite of what the Bible's telling you. You know, from the time that kids are in preschool, all of the, the, you know, the popular children's movies and books and medias that they are constantly exposed to have this same message, and that is the old, be yourself, follow your heart message. Now, beloved, th that has just got to be the most anti-Christian message on the face of the earth. We are not called to be ourselves and to follow our hearts and follow our desires. That, that is not the Christian message. The Christian message is to be like Christ, to follow after Christ. And that's why it's called Christianity. It's a Jesus religion. It's not, it's not a Logan religion. It's not, not a self-religion where I, I'm, I'm, I'm following after my lusts and, and, and satisfying my own cravings. It's not that. It's, it's deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus Christ. For it is to Him that all the glory belongs. And so when this culture that we live in promotes the, the wicked notion of, of you know, be yourself, follow your heart, what they're telling you is be enslaved to your sin. Obey the passions of your flesh, which is the exact thing that Peter is telling us to abstain from. And so then what has happened is that this be yourself, follow your heart philosophy has manifested itself into the blatant promotions of sin and promiscuity in this day. Well, here's the thing. It's obvious. It's obvious to all of us. It's obvious to everyone in this room that if we think about the values of the kingdom of God, if, if we think about the values of the scriptures, if we think about the values of our Christian faith, if we think about these things, we know quite obviously that these values are staunchly different from the values of the world. And that, that makes sense. That, that fits together with what Peter has said in his epistle, and if you've been following along with these messages, you, you're, you've been able to, to track this. We are the elect exiles. We are sojourners. We are strangers in a strange and foreign land, which absolutely hates everything that we stand for. Nevertheless, we have to live in this world. As a matter of fact, God in his infinite and wonderful and wise providence has called us to live in this hostile world. Do you think about that? Do you think about the fact that you have been appointed by the majesty on high to be alive at the exact moment in history that you are at? That's, that's not, it's not meaningless. We've we got to think about this. We've we got to think about the fact that God has called us to live in, in a day and age in 2023 where we have this culture of death, this culture which hates what God stands for, which hates what the Bible stands for. So we got we to think about this. We have to think about how we are to live, how we are to behave, how we are to be Christians in the society. What would God have us do? 
So what our responsibility then is at this moment is to look into our Bibles and see what it says in here that God would have us do, how he would have us do it as well. So after Peter's statement to, as sojourners and exiles, abstain from the passions of the flesh, he then tells us to keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. And how does he characterize good Christian conduct among a hostile world? He says in chapter 2, verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Peter calls us to godly Submission. He does not call, uh, call us to be revolutionaries, to be extremists. He calls us to godly and holy and righteous submission. He lists how we should be submissive to the government, how servants ought to be submissive to their masters, how a wife ought to submit to her husband. And Peter shows us how Jesus Christ himself is the perfect example of this attitude and mindset. And uh, in the passage that we will be focusing on today... Peter is going to be uh, helping us see how we ought to live generally uh, throughout our everyday lives in a society that hates what we stand for, in in a society that is hostile to us. And so in verse 8, we read this here in chapter 3, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. That word, finally, at the beginning there, it's like Peter's wrapping up everything that he has been saying in this particular context. What he's said before in regards to submission when you are being wrongly and unjustly persecuted. Then when he says, all of you, finally, all of you, he is showing that his words are specifically pertaining to the Christian community. He has begun his letter addressing to Christians, now he's trying to get us to pay attention. Finally, all of you, he has something to say to us, and the first thing he says is we ought to have, quote, unity of mind. Right off the bat, if you, if you know anything about your heart, you realize that that's not very easy. It's, it's what's easy, what's so easy for us, even as Christians, is to want to divide over every little thing, over stupid little things that, that, that just don't matter. And we've all heard the story before about the first, second, and third Baptist church, which are all on the same street corner. And if you don't know what happened, is that the second Baptist church split off because they didn't like the color of the pews at the first Baptist. Well, then the third Baptist, they split off because the parking spaces weren't spaced out enough. And now, it's easy to, to laugh at that and go, okay, well, that's pretty silly. That's, that's pretty immature. Well, yeah, it is silly. It is immature. It's, it's easy. But, I mean, how many of us are ready to divide and, and take up arms over styles of music or these external things that just really are not what's important? This is not something that the Apostle, Paul, uh, or Apostle Peter wants to see. If we live in a world, as we've acknowledged, as your experience tells you, truly that is hostile to Christian values and Christian beliefs, folks, we've got to have unity of mind. Now, how are we supposed to do this? Because all of us are different people. We all come from different generations. We come from different towns. We have different parents. We have all these things. It's inevitable that there are going to be these external differences even in the Christian community. Some of us are going to have this style of music or taste of music. Some of us are going to dress this way or that way and and all these different things. And so it's like, well, how how could could you ever have unity? Well, that's why Peter specifically calls for unity of mind. He doesn't say complete uniformity like you're a, a robot that can't have any individuality whatsoever. He's saying, no, 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 unity of mind. We're talking about recognizing and sharing the same core spiritual values and beliefs. Because here's the thing, all are one in Christ. And so if we, if you are going to claim that you are in Christ, then we should all together hold the same things to be central in our hearts and in our minds. We should all together hold the word of God and the gospel as our central values. 
If our culture increases in its hostility against the cores of the Christian faith, how are we supposed to stand firm? How are we supposed to be strong? How are we supposed to be good Christian soldiers if we're just letting ourselves get divided over silly things, over, over stupid things? Don't get me wrong. There, there are things worthy of division. There, there are doctrinal issues. There is theology. These are important matters, and it's important to have these discussions. But the way someone dresses, the style of music they listen to, or one of these types of things, this is, this is not important. This is the type of situation where the mature man or woman is called to just sort of let it slide and say, hey, we've we got to focus on what's important here. Because our enemies are, are, are gaining ground. And so the next thing that Peter says is sympathy. We should be understanding of others' feelings. We should be aware of what they're going through so that we can be of spiritual benefit to each other. Now, the third thing listed is brotherly love. This comes from the Greek philadelphos, which, uh, from which we derive the word Philadelphia, city of brotherly love. And so we must never underestimate the importance of brotherly love, more accurately rendered love for the brethren, that is, other believers. The, the New Testament particularly admonishes us in a number of places to specifically love the brothers. Now, now you've heard, love thy neighbor as thyself, and, and yes, that is, is obviously the, the teachings of the Scripture, Old and New Testament. But to love our brothers and sisters uh, in, in the faith, those who are members of the family of God, this, this is, there's a very particular and peculiar sense in which love for the brethren has as almost a, a priority for us. You know, these are the people who Jesus died for. They're precious. And if he loves them, we ought to as well. Now, the next thing we read is a tender heart, which could also be rendered compassionate. We ought to be long-suffering. We ought to be understanding of one another. Similar to being sympathetic, we should be willing to to bear with one another, to, even when someone does you wrong or when they, they, they wrong you in some way that they make a mistake in how they treat you or how they address you, we ought to be tender-hearted, compassionate with the brethren. For just as when you've done wrong, when I have done wrong, God has showed his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. Now verse 8 ends with, and a humble mind. That is, do not think too highly of yourself. Now, is it not true that in most cases when the other things Peter mentioned here are not applied, that is, unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, tender heart, when, when these things sort of fall to the wayside, that the root of all of that division that we see is ultimately the result of pride on one person or the other's heart. You know, when we divide over stupid and silly things, it is because of pride. It is because we think that ourselves, we think that our petty little squabbles over these vain things are more important than the truths which unite us, namely the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, to think that, and again, I'm not talking about theology. I'm not talking about doctrine because there are things that are so important that you must stand your ground on this. I'm not talking about that. What I'm talking about is just the, the silly things. And, and you know what I mean. You, you, the external, the, uh, the vanity type stuff. Now, to think that the style of music you prefer or how you dress or, or any of these different things is more important than the gospel of Jesus Christ, that, that is pride. It, and, and to think that your tastes or your opinions are more important than that there be unity amongst the brethren, the, the Christian community, the, the bride of Christ that he came from heaven and sought and paid for with his own blood. To think that these silly little squabbles are more important than that is pride, it is arrogance 
For the same God who made you made them too. And he died for you. Well, he had to die for you if you're a Christian. Why? Because you're a sinner. And he died for the other Christian just the same. So why does Peter include that statement here? I I find that very striking to me. That in this context, this whole section about you know suffering for righteous snake, you're a sojourner, you're an exile in this world, they're going to treat you unjustly, they're going to persecute you, you're going to suffer for the name of Christ. In the midst of this context where Peter is telling us how we ought to behave amidst such, such struggles, he just hammers out, he's like, guys, you're, all, the rest of it is going to all just fall to pieces. It's not, you're not going to have any sort of success in, in standing firm amidst this persecution if, if you guys yourselves are, are broken. There must be love for the brethren. There must be unity amongst the Christian community with a culture that hates morality, which hates the Bible and hates God growing on the horizon. Oh, my brothers and sisters, we must cling together We must hold fast to one another in love and affection and be united in the truth of Jesus Christ for a house divided against itself will not stand. As I said before, this is the hour that God has called us to by his divine and immutable, that is unchanging providence. Let us all strive to live pleasing in his sight. Let us all strive to love one another. For what glorifies a father more than when his children can get along? Verse 9, we read, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. Now in verse 8, Peter gives us a bunch of do's. Well, here we're given a bunch of don'ts. He says, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. Now, that, that's just good, solid Christian conduct right there. We see similar exhortations throughout Scripture, but what I want to point out in the context of Peter's letter is how this is characteristic of the way that Jesus Christ, who is our example, lived his life. Chapter 2, verse 23, Peter writes, When he, that is Christ, was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered for us, when he suffered He did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Now, never in the history of the world was there a man who was treated more unjustly than our God, our Lord, and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Yet, when people did evil to him, he did not do evil back. When people reviled him, he did not revile back. But what Peter said he did was that he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Now, I just want to point out, what is a more enticing and seductive temptation than when someone is opposing you and treating you and you know that it's wrong to to, to fire back? I, I mean, it's almost involuntary. It's, it's like you can't even think about it before it comes out. Why? Because your flesh is doing it. That, that, that is just your sinful nature that's doing it. That's why it almost surprises you that you can be so quick to speak evil back against those who speak evil to you. And that's why it takes the grace of God. That's why we have to look to Christ, our example. That's why we have to be ingenerated and indwelt with the Holy Spirit. For what man can do these things in his own in his own flesh. Jesus, when he was suffering, when they were doing evil against him, he was continually mindful of his father as he suffered, knowing that his father would vindicate, vindicate him should he be faithful towards him. Now, Peter gives us that exact same instruction here. He says, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, So don't do this, do that instead. On the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. Now, to bless someone means not just general kindness, not just a smile, not just general friendliness, but literally what that word means in the original language is to wish and pray for God's favor upon that person. 
You see that? You see that there in your Bibles? We are to literally, this is the instruction, we are to hope and pray that God would be favorable to them who persecute us. We are to pray that God would be gracious, that God would be merciful to them. Again, that is not something that we can do in the power of our own flesh. That, that is not something that comes natural to us. That to have the capacity to truly bless those who persecute, cues or persecute, curse, and abuse and slander you, that takes divine grace from on high and the power of God the Holy Spirit. But yet this is what we are to do. Oh, how we should pray that God would give us the strength and give us the help that we might walk in the Spirit, that these good, honorable, and lovely deeds would flow out of our hearts. And then look at the promise that we find here in Scripture. Peter says, Bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. Lots of, lots of debate, lots of discussion about what Peter means there, uh, that we will obtain a blessing. So to so you might be wondering what it is that he means. Well, to answer that question, we just got to keep reading. Look at what Peter says next. You know, what are the uh, three rules of Bible study? Context, context, context. And so we just keep reading. And what we find is that in verses 10 through 12, Peter is actually quoting from the 34th Psalm, which talks about the blessings of living a God-honoring life. So in verse 10, he says, "For," and then this is when he quotes the psalm, for whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Now, in the first place, the text is addressing whoever desires to love life and see good days. Now, if you've been listening to what I've been saying so far, you might think that that sounds contradictory. You know, Peter's already established from verse 1 that that the Christian is an exile, is a, is a sojourner, is a stranger in this life. If this world is not our home and we're just a passing through, what is this deal about loving life and, and seeing good days? Well, what Peter is talking about, and, and the, the other thing, what is Peter talking about when he says, obtain a blessing? And So all of this seems contradictory, right? He's like, you're going to suffer, they're going to hate you. Uh, you're, you're going to suffer for righteousness' sake, yet at the same time, you know, do this to obtain a blessing. You know, desire to love life, see good days. These seem like two polar opposite things until we understand it properly. And so we will talk about that as the text reveals it. So just moving through with the flow of the text, Peter is addressing whoever desires to love life and to see good days. In the original Hebrew of the psalm, the, the version that you find if you just flip to the Old Testament in your English Bible, this phrase is worded as, as though it were a question. David writes, What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? It's, it's an invitation. So what David was doing and what Peter is now doing by quoting him and what I am doing by quoting Peter just trying to get the attention of anyone out there who would desire to live a happy and fulfilled life so that he can tell them how they might achieve it. And so I, Logan, speaking through Peter, who spoke through David, now ask you who are listening to my voice, do you desire to love life? Do you desire to see good days? We're going to tell you how to do it. Peter says, when he quotes David, whoever desires to love life and see good days let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Some of you thought that I was going to tell you that he had to write a check into this ministry. It's not the case. If you want to love life, if you want to see good days, you must not. You cannot use your tongue for evil. You cannot speak deceit. We were just told in verse 9 not to pay back reviling for reviling. Now, it can be so easy. And, and as a matter of fact, as I've said, it is one of the most enticing lusts and, and seductive temptations that we can experience when someone is wronging us, when they're speaking evil against us, when they're opposing us, and we know that we're wrong. We know that they're wrong, excuse me, for we know that if we are standing for Christ, if we are 
doing that which is godly, we know that we are in the right and that those who are opposing us are doing so unjustly. And so it's so tempting in those circumstances to just fire back at them. And the thing is, as tempting as it is to want to revile back and and speak wrongfully and sinfully about them and slander them and lie about them and insult them, when they do so to us, can't do it. It's not not how Christians act. It's not how Christians behave. Type type person that is is saved, is is dwelt with the Holy Spirit, that's not how they act. For this, though it may be pleasing to our flesh, it is not pleasing in God's sight. This behavior will not result in loving life and seeing good days, just to keep in the context here. And so Peter, still quoting from Psalm 34, continues in verse 11. He says, Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. So the one who would desire to love life and see good days, if they are to obtain the blessing that Peter is talking about, they must not only keep their tongue from evil, but they must turn from evil in general, to just just turn from evil with every aspect of our being and, and to do good. And we're told, let him seek peace and pursue it. Now again, given what we've already been told, this applies even when people are being evil to us, when they are not doing good to us. This applies even when people are not seeking and pursuing peace with us. We are to be good. We are to be righteous. We are to be peaceful. You know, the world is going to do what the world wants to do. The people in our lives are going to do what they are going to do. Christians, we must be consistent with our profession of faith. We must be consistent with the Bible that we say we believe and we say is the Word of God. And we must be consistent with the teachings of the man who we claim has died for our sins. We must remain loving. We must remain gentle. We must remain kind. We must remain peaceful. We must remain good. For this is what God would have of us. This is how Jesus lived his life, and this, this is what's pleasing in God's sight. So Peter, continuing to quote from Psalm 34, says in verse 12, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. And his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So here's the verse that I think answers the question of what Peter was talking about when he said we could obtain a blessing and, and you know, love life and see good days. So the Holy Spirit inspired text of Holy Scripture, which is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, says... For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. Now, I know I've I've talked about this before, those of you who have heard me preach at other times, and so at the risk of sounding like a broken record, I'm going to say this again because I think it's that important. The, The way that we typically think about blessings and loving life and seeing good days, just to use the language of the text here, the way we think about that stuff is wrong. It's it's incredibly wrong. We think that a blessing is a new car or house or a promotion at work or some other kind of material thing. And listen, I don't see how that could possibly be in Peter's mind here when he says that if you keep from evil and do good, especially in context when people are treating you unjustly, that you will obtain a blessing and love life and see good days. So what is he saying? Ladies and gentlemen, my beloved brothers and sisters in the faith, I bid you listen to the words of Holy Scripture. For we know we are sojourners and exiles in this life. This world is not our home. And so when Peter talks about a blessing, he is not talking about worldly, earthly, material blessings. But he is talking about blessings that we experience in this life. That's why I said so much of our thinking is wrong about this subject. For some of you might be wondering, well, Logan, how can, you, how can a blessing not be worldly, not be earthly, and yet you're saying that this is something that we get to experience in this life? Well, listen to the words of scriptures here, my brethren. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, 
and his ears are open to their prayer. And just two verses later, in the section of the psalm that Peter doesn't quote, but is still relevant, David writes, When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Listen to this. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Now you see, here is the great mystery of the Christian life. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. Many. And that that means what it says. It means many. Uh, Paul writes, all those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Listen to what Jesus himself says in John chapter 15. Jesus says, if the world hates you, speaking to his disciples, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because, because of the fact that you are not of the world, but I, Jesus, chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. That means what it says too. But oh, please take heed of the comforting promise that God is speaking to us right now. He's speaking it to me and he's speaking it to you. God is saying and speaking to us that the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and he saves the crushed in spirit. And so when we are persecuted and when evil comes our way and yet we remain humble, we remain faithful, we do not pay back evil for evil, we don't sin with our mouths and and speak evil things, but we remain tenderhearted and and blessing those who would curse us and slander us. We will obtain a blessing. We will love life and we will see good days. Not material blessings will come our way, not that your bank account will be increased, but that the Lord will draw near to us. I remember that old gospel song, and one of the songs you sang tonight, Al, reminded me of the same kind of thing, you know, just a closer walk with thee. You know, true Christians, real Christians, Holy Spirit indwelt Christians, the type of people that are going to go to heaven when they die, desire a closer walk with God. And God is promising you through his word, that when you live righteously in the face of hostility, he will hear your prayers and his eyes will be upon you. He will deliver you from your troubles. He will save your crushed spirit for the Lord is near the brokenhearted. James chapter 4 verse 8 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. That's, that's why James can also say at the beginning of his epistle, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That is a perfect, full, complete faith. A more real experience of the presence of God, a more devotional prayer life. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears are open to their prayer. Do you, do you, do you see that? Do you, do you understand the blessing of, that Scripture is trying to tell you about? He's saying, live a God-honoring life. Walk in His statutes. Walk in His ways, and He will draw near to you. He will be with you. His eyes will be upon you. He will be near to you when you're brokenhearted. He will deliver you from your troubles. He will save your crushed and broken spirit. He will draw near to you if you draw near to Him. Now, who would not want to have a closer relationship with God? Who is more lovely than He? Who is more lovely than the Savior that shed His blood on the cross for wicked sinners, for whores who, who, who transgressed His name and blasphemed Him and did wicked things in His sight, and yet He looks at her and He says, I love you and I'm going to die for you. That, that's, that's what He does for His sheep. That's what He does for His people. Now, do you not want to know Him? Do you not want to walk with Him? He promises 
that if we should walk in his ways, if we should read his word, if we should obey his statutes, if we would draw near to him, he will draw near to us. Now here we have these great exhortations towards righteousness and the blessings that will come, that the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But there is a warning as well. For the end of verse 12 says, But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now the Bible does not teach that one must be sinlessly perfect to enter heaven. But the scripture does say that without holiness no one shall see the Lord. That, that's, a, that's a solemn warning. That's a solemn thing. Well listen, my friends, if it is true that we are new creations in Jesus Christ, then it means that we're new creations in Jesus Christ. It means that we're not what we once were. Do we still struggle with sin? Do we still battle with the flesh? Of course. Read Romans 7. The Apostle Paul himself experienced this, this spiritual warfare in his own body. But nevertheless, the Apostle Paul said that everyone who is in Christ is a new creation. Why? Well, because they've been born again. It's, it's something that their, their new life is different than their old life. And so let us all pray that God would Equip us and give us the strength to, to live righteously, to be loving, to be tender-hearted, even when hostility comes our way. And this is not just, you know, legalism and, and pointing the finger at you and, and doing all this stuff and, and telling you that you need to be better and all this external law being, being thrown upon you. What the Bible teaches is that if we've been born again, that our desire will be changed, that our desires will be to want to do that which is pleasing to the Lord. It's not that we are, you know, forcing ourselves to do things we don't want to do and, and abstaining from all the things we do want to do. No, no, no. It's that our desires have changed. When, when the Apostle Paul sins, he's saying, I'm not doing that which I want to do. Why? Well, his, his, his affections change. His heart's change. He's been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, but he still has his flesh. And so that's, that's what the, the battle is. And so in verse 13, we read, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Now this at first seems like, again, another puzzling statement given the context for the question is asked rhetorically. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But if you keep reading the passage, he goes on to talk, have used all this language about suffering and, and all these different things. So we have to do, again, is, is remember the, the promises Peter gives us in quoting the psalm when he says, The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. And, you know, I, I remember that great statement from the Apostle Paul, Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? He says that in all things, including tribulation and distress and persecution and famine and nakedness and danger and sword, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So you see, as already mentioned, the idea is that you know, our hope is not in this life for the sake of this life, but our lives on earth are made rich when we live them for heaven's sake. Now, no one can truly harm you. No one can truly harm you. No one can truly harm us if our health, our safety is in the grace of God. No one can bring us misery when our joy and our satisfaction is in God. So verse 14, given what he just said there, Peter goes on, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Now although no one can truly bring us harm, Peter concedes and the testimony of scripture elsewhere says there is suffering in this life, and particularly for the Christian. And so to give us comfort and counsel, Peter says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Now, did we not just read all those promises in the 34th Psalm that God is going to deliver his children from his troubles and that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted? And, you know, Peter already said in chapter 2, it is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. The Lord Jesus Christ himself in his great beatitude says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, 
for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, as I've said before, you know, this doesn't mean that we ought to all adopt a martyr's complex and just go out and just offend people for the sake of offending people and, and go out and seek persecution just to satisfy some weird pride or anything like that. But if and when persecution and suffering do indeed come, let us remember that when we suffer for doing good, when we suffer for the cause of Christ, what we are doing is pleasing and acceptable in God's sight. So Peter goes on, he says, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. So, so far in in this passage that I've been preaching tonight, in light of the general hostility against the Christian faith that Peter knows believers are experiencing in this world and that we have to deal with, we've been given certain instructions. Now, in verse 8, we were told how Christians ought to live amongst other Christians. And then we were again exhorted to not pay back evil for evil and, and remain honorable and peaceable even when we are suffering for righteousness' sake. And so we know, in essence, what we're not supposed to do. We know how we are not supposed to respond to this kind of slander and, and evil against us in Christ's name. But now what Peter is going to do is he's going to tell us actually how we do respond. And so the first thing that we are told is, is not, not to fear them. Don't, don't be troubled by them. Now, why is that? Well, because our hope is not in this world. When we talked about how Peter tells us that we can obtain a blessing and love life and see good days, we recognize that he was not talking about worldliness or worldly blessings but that he was rather talking about these, these spiritual blessings, these, these blessings of an increased faith and, and, and that type of nature. Because our ultimate hope is not in this world, but in eternity. Jesus says these words. He said, Do not fear those who kill the body and cannot kill the soul, because after that they have nothing more they can do. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. You see, our adversaries in this life ultimately can't, can't harm us. As Peter said in verse 13, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? For if your passions and your priorities are not in this life, but in the grace of God and in the spiritual blessings we have in Him, then no one can really have the power to disrupt that in the flesh. Why? Because the blessing does not come from your flesh. It comes from the grace of God. So we know not to be afraid, So what are we then to just positively do? Well, verse 15, we are told, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Now, the very first thing we are told is, In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Now, that's that's something that I... I try to bring to light often is that Christianity, in essence, is a religion of the heart. It's a religion of the emotion, a religion of the affection. Honor Christ not just with your mouth, okay, on the outside, but in your heart. What, what, what's going on in here should be, should be changed. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Do not have fear in your hearts. Remember, the fear is, you know, people who can harm you in this life. Do not have your affections and your desires so tied up in the earth, earthly things that people who can threaten your earthly things cause you to have fear. So don't have fear in your hearts. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Don't fixate your emotions and your affections on those who oppose you in the sense that you're allowing it to overwhelm you and hurt you. But rather, concern yourself, fill your heart with the loveliness and the holiness of Jesus Christ who loves you as he is your shepherd and you are his sheep and he loves you and dies for you. He put put your heart towards his majesty. Put your heart towards his holiness that you might not get discouraged. Now also, remembering the holiness of Christ will put within your heart a desire not to sin. So a desire to do what is right. Now, in the immediate context, what our flesh wants to do and I've said this before tonight, but I'll say it again. What our flesh wants to do when people oppose us is to just be nasty back at them, to oppose them, to slander them, to speak evil against them. 
But the reality is, when my heart is honoring Christ the Lord as holy, it gives a desire not to want to sin against Him. And you can apply that in many situations. So don't, don't sin. What's the first step? Honor Christ in your heart as holy. So our desire then is to please Christ. Well, how would Christ have us to respond? If, when it comes to the point where someone is, is addressing me, and I actually got, I got to say something. I, I got to speak as a Christian. What am I supposed to do? I'm supposed to do that. So in verse 15, we read, In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Now that might be a familiar verse to some of you. That word defense in the Greek is apologia, from which we derive the English term apologetics. And so 90% of the time when you hear this verse being quoted and, and applied, it's usually someone talking about you know, these big, fancy, scholarly debates with these men that have doctorates in theology and doctorates in philosophy. And, and, you know, we usually think that this verse is, you know, talking about the prose, so to speak. And, and, and you know, there's nothing, nothing wrong with that. I myself, I'm, I thank God that he has blessed the church with men like, you know, James White, Jeff Durbin, to go back a few years, or Greg Bonson, these these men who were willing to go out and engage and, and defend the Christian faith, and I'm thankful for that. That's a good thing. We glorify and honor God when we do that. But that's it's not necessarily or immediately what Peter's really talking about here. Peter's not just addressing PhDs. He's not just talking about you know the pros, the, the, the big-name guys. He's talking about just the average Christian. He's talking about just you sitting in the pew right there. The context is about suffering for righteousness' sake, being a Christian in, in a hostile world. And yet, although you've been slandered and you've been reviled and people are against you and people are opposing you and all these different things, you still must have peace. You still must be faithful. You remain committed to Jesus Christ. So the context is you know, someone sees you they see how you're being mistreated and they see how you're being slandered and reviled and evil's being spoken against you and yet you're not responding sinfully. You're not, you're doing something different. And, and so a guy comes up to you and he asks for a reason why you have hope. Why, why is it that you can have hope when you're being slandered? What's, what's behind this hope that you have? Christians, listen to the command of Scripture. Be prepared to make a defense for the hope that is in you. Be able to explain why you have this hope. Now, we've already said it's not just talking about the guy with a doctorate on a debate stage and all these things. And so you may be wondering, what then is it saying? Well, what, how are we supposed to internalize this and apply it? Well, I think Calvin expresses it best. He says, but it ought to be noticed that Peter here does not command us to be prepared to solve any question that may be muted. For it is not the duty of all to speak on every subject, but it is the general doctrine that is meant, which belongs to the ignorant and the simple, just the, the average person. Then Peter had in view no other thing than that Christians should make it evident to unbelievers that they truly worship God, have a holy and good religion, and in this there is no difficulty. For it would be strange if we could bring nothing to defend our faith when anyone made inquiries respecting it. For we ought always to take care that all may know that we fear God and that we piously and reverentially regard His legitimate worship. What are we being told here? Well, it's to be prepared to explain to others where this hope comes from, which is ultimately why we worship Jesus Christ, why we love Him as Savior and revere Him as Lord, and thus while we are able to have hope when we are slandered. Well, how are we, how are we to do that? You know, why am I a Christian? Well, why did I come to faith? Well, I believe here's where we need to remember what the Apostle Paul says is the sword of the Spirit. That is the Word of God. It's, it's right here. It's, it's in your Bible. This, this is what you need. This is what you need to set your attention and your focus on. Peter's not saying that 
you need to know every single argument and disagreement and debate about evolution and creation and philosophy and every argument for the existence and nature of God and all these different things. Again, pursuing that knowledge is good. It's a good and holy thing. But what Peter is saying is that you ought to be able to explain to someone why you have hope. Ladies and gentlemen, the reason that I have hope is not because of a philosophical argument. It's not because of any evidence that any archaeologist has found. The reason that I have hope is in what the Bible tells me that God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son so that every person who believes in Him would not perish but have eternal life. That, that is the general doctrine right there. That is the reason for the hope that is in you. You have to be able to explain that to others. That the eternal Son of God became incarnate, took on human form in the person of Jesus Christ. He lived a sinless life. He died on the cross and He rose again on the third day and that God the Father in His wise and almighty providence has, has chosen a particular people, has elected them. The Son dies for the people. The Holy Spirit regenerates those people. There's unis, unity in, in the actions of the triune God in bringing about this work. And so that, that's the reason I have faith. It's in what God has done for me and what He's done for all His people. It's the only reason that anyone else has faith and that's, that's what Peter's talking about when he's saying, be able to give a reason for this hope that is in you. Peter wants us to be able to explain that simple gospel message because arguments, cleverness, intellectual reasoning, all, all of these things are good. We, go, we glorify God when we take part in them. But they never saved anyone. Only God saves sinners. I don't save sinners. We don't save sinners, and sinners don't save themselves God saves them. We must put our faith and our trust in God who uses the word of God. Now remember, all of this is in the context of people who are hostile against our faith. So that means we can't be embarrassed about our faith. We can't be ashamed of it. We can't be afraid that people will not like us or that they will be offended if we are Christians. For we must always be ready to make a defense for the hope that is in us. But before we go and go crazy and we forget all of the moral virtues that, about remaining humble and peaceable and respectful, Peter is going to tell us that it's not just what we say, but how we say it that matters to God, which is why verse 15 ends with, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Verse 16 goes on to say, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. You see, whenever I respond to someone who is hostile to me, and, and I speak to them, and I give them the gospel, I must do so with gentleness and respect, in such a way that leaves me with a good and clear conscience, which means I can't sin in how I respond to them. Now, you may be going, well, wow, you've just kind of been saying the same thing over and over again. But listen, that's, that's what's going on in the text here. That's what Peter is saying here. It's like the Holy Spirit knows that these things are difficult for me and difficult for you. And so he's just reminding us over and over again that people sinning against us is not an excuse to sin. So having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Now, I've just said that salvation is of the Lord, that we do not save sinners. Sinners do not save themselves. But God is pleased to use us in His redemptive work. For those with discernment, it will be clear and obvious to see who is in the right and who is in the wrong if when we are sinned, we do not sin back. God will be pleased to glorify Himself by using our good behavior to reach the lost world. When we speak gospel truth in gentleness and respect to those who hate and oppose us. When we come to verse 17, Peter wants again to sort of tie this all up in, in a bow. He says, for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. You, you see, ultimately, the commitment and the devotion of every true Christian is to live pleasing to God. We want to live our lives in the way that He would have us live. 
And again, in 1 Peter, we are reminded that it is a good and gracious thing to suffer for doing good rather than doing evil. So we've said at the outset of the message, my brothers and sisters, we are not of this world, but we are in this world. And so let us, by the grace of God, strive with all of our might to live God-honoring lives while we are here. This world hates us. This world hates our faith. Why? Because they hate our Savior. They hate Jesus. 2 Corinthians says that we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. So let us take all this, let us internalize the truth of Scripture here, let us evaluate the culture that we live in that we might be able to be faithful, honorable to God in how we respond to it. Let us hold fast to our precious Lord and Savior. Let the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in His sight. When they hate us, when they abuse us, when they curse us, dear ones, let us bless them. For when we hated, abused, and cursed God, He blessed us. Let us be prepared to give them the reason for our hope. And that is the message of Jesus Christ. For when we sinned against God, he loved us. Now let us do the same. Why don't you join me in, in a word of prayer? Father God, Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the scripture. We thank you for the truth that you revealed to us, the truth that you've made known to us. Father God, I just pray that you would give us the strength, you would give us the faith to, to abide in your word here, to let these things take hold of our hearts. Father God, let us, let us live our lives reflective of the truth that we've been exposed to tonight. Father God, we just pray that you would keep us humble, you would keep us from sin, you would help us to live honorable in, in, in your sight. Let us use our lives to glorify your name. In Jesus' name that we pray, amen.